0: It is one of the good traditions we have as a church that we have an annual service of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord where we give public expression to the thanks that we have as the people of God gathering on the afternoon on the Sunday prior to the national celebration of the Thanksgiving holiday. Um, And it's also become a tradition, at least in recent years, for me normally to preach a sermon, a message, on the subject of biblical thanksgiving the morning prior to our afternoon season of public thanksgiving. As I thought about the subject of thanksgiving, I recalled something I've read not too long ago about a study that was done seeking to learn of the prevalence of gratitude experienced by the American people. I think it was called a gratitude study. And the interesting thing about it was uh, if you could put a percentage on the amount of Americans who claimed to experience on a regular basis feelings of gratitude, where do you think that number would lie? Maybe you think it will be below 50%? I mean, if you're on Facebook or Twitter, you probably think it's way below 50%, because all people do is complain, right? All these avenues of social media just is an opportunity for people to vent their spleen on everything that they're unhappy about. They don't like the government. They don't like other governments. They don't like the economy. They don't like the world economy. They don't like their neighbors. They don't like their parents. They don't like their children, their spouse, their jobs. They certainly don't like their pastors. On and on and on it goes. But the interesting thing is, it's not below 50%. It's not even below 60% or 70%. Or even 80%, 85% of Americans claim to have experienced the feeling of gratitude on a regular, at least a weekly basis. I acknowledge that these studies are just not infallible, there's lots of complexities about it, there's ways questions are asked, but there does seem in my mind to be a gap between what people think about themselves as grateful people and the actual ways in which gratitude is expressed in the real world, the way people speak and write and behave. What causes this gap to exist? Well, I mentioned before that a lot of times people were just been instructed you 're supposed to say thank you you 're supposed to feel grateful it 's good to have a grateful spirit and to express gratitude to other people. That is an obligation and I think a lot of us feel that that 's true, and that 's obviously important it 's among the things that are important in our estimation of Important things. But yet, it's not anything we really like to do. Think of the kid who's told by his mom, now thank uh, Cousin Marge for the gift that she's given you. And the kid just looks and says, thank you, Marge. Thank you, Auntie Marge, or whatever. It's one willing. It's extracted out of them. And I think that sometimes the perspectives we have on the subject of gratitude just comply with good manners. It's good form uh, to say grateful words. But you see, the biblical standard is not manners, it's not good form. It's not complying with society's expectations. Gratitude is a grace to be felt deeply in the renewed heart by those who have experienced the good and the grace of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because there are statements in the New Testament in particular, in Paul's letters, that speak about the giving of thanks at all times, at all seasons. Be anxious for nothing, Paul says, but in all things by prayer and supplication wait a minute now, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. It's not just ask for your needs. It's not just come to God asking for his help in our trials, but with thanksgiving but Lord I'm coming to you for, because I'm troubled. Yeah, but you still have things to be thankful for. You may be in trouble, but you're not in in the maximum amount of trouble you possibly can be in. There's lots of things you have that are good things. That you need to be returning thanks to God for. And again, that's not just form. That's just not to get a benefit from God. It's to be an expression of of a heart of gratitude. That I have nothing, I've done nothing, that's deserving of any good thing. And anything God gives me is is his free grace. Look at what he's given me. He's given me His Son. He's given me His salvation. He's given me access to His presence. He's given me His love. At all times, in all circumstances, we have, as believers in Jesus, a clear basis for thanksgiving that should be always producing a spirit of deep and continual gratitude. I want to explore with you this morning something of that clear basis for gratitude by turning your attention to a passage of Scripture that I don't know we'd ordinarily turn here for a Thanksgiving message, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And I'm going to ask you to follow with me in your Bibles as I read James chapter 1. I'm going to start the reading at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. James 1 verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his Preachers. And to see the significance of this passage for the theme of Thanksgiving. I want to say something, first of all, about its context. That's always good to look at the context in which statements in Scripture are found. And then I want to say something about the words themselves. So we're moving from context to content, the words in their content. And then finally, to draw out some conclusions that these words should bring to us uh, with reference particularly to Thanksgiving. First of all, the context. Let me say at the outset that James is probably if not the most, yet one of the more um, practical of the old, of the New Testament letters. Uh, many times the book of James echoes our Lord's words in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount, of course, is dealing with things like character. It's dealing with things like how we... Um, carry out our lives and moral with moral relations with other people. It, it, it deals with matters of prayer and giving and um, matters of uh, fasting even. Uh, our righteousness as it's done before God. It, it deals with how we view the, the practical concerns of material things in this world. It's a very, very practical message from first to last. And Jesus says at the end of it, He doesn't say that He that has these words of mine and, and believes them, uh, or he that has these words of mine and thinks they're, they're good, or he that has these words of mine and, and, and thinks they're, they're wise in order to be accepted by people, he says, He that has these words of mine and does them, and does them, he will liken unto a man who builds his house upon a rock. It's a practical message. It's about what we are called upon to be doing as the people called by God into the grace of the gospel. Into a relationship with Jesus Christ to be subject to him under his rule in his kingdom. These are the things that we are to be doing. And James picks up that very language of the Sermon on the Mount. Because he's talking about the practical things of living life in God's world. The bridling of the tongue. The visiting of widows and orphans. The respect that's owed to strangers who would come into our assembly, not having favor to rich versus the poor, but treating all equally. Works that give expression and proof to the reality of our faith. The dangers of friendship with the world. In those regards, in a lot of ways, he parallels First Peter. That's also a practical letter dealing with conduct. The way we conduct ourselves as strangers and exiles in this world. How we live our life before God. Now the full assumption is we are possessors of the full grace that the gospel brings. Even though there's not much that's said about the gospel. Here are the fruits of the gospel that are to be displayed in the lives that we live before God as believers in Jesus Christ. And so... James begins this letter not so much with, well, look, you got all these blessings in Jesus, so celebrate, rejoice, give praise, give thanksgiving. That's the stuff you'd expect in a Thanksgiving sermon. But that's not where James begins this letter. He begins this letter with hardships. He begins this letter with troubles. He begins this letter with trials. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various Kinds of trials he begins with the testings of our faith he begins with the things we don't like the things we'd rather avoid the things we pray God to deliver us from And James says those are things that are part and parcel of the life you've been called to as a believer and you're called to honor God in the midst of those trials. And of course the Sermon on the Mount does the very same thing. No sooner does Jesus speak the words of the Beatitudes, the blessed person is the person who's poor in spirit, who mourns, who's meek, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who's merciful, peaceable, and pure, than he says, blessed are they that are persecuted. Blessed are they that are persecuted. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. How do you do that? How do you do that? I understand to rejoice when everything is well, when everyone's healthy, when all the bills are paid, when you got a raise at your job, when you're moving from one uh, uh, promotion to another promotion, you're you're an upwardly mobile American. Okay, let's uh, all go to church and praise the Lord. James says, Praise the Lord in the midst of troubles, hardships, difficulties, trials, testings. This is where the proof of the new birth is going to be manifest. The proof of a saving relationship to God in Christ is going to be manifest. Remember Jesus' parable of the soils? When Jesus says, There are people that receive the word with joy. This is is the very thing I'm looking for. I'm looking for a gospel that will fix me up to go to heaven when I die, though I live upon earth as I please, and promote my own ambitions and my own desires. But hey, it's great I know at the end of it all I'll go to be with God in, in heaven. But Jesus says that person that has that joy in those things, in time, will begin to experience trials and afflictions, and tribulations for the sake of the Word. For the sake of the Word. As long as the Word brought blessings, that's great. Now the Word's bringing trouble? I'm out of here. I'm gone. I'm not hanging in here. I don't care if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I don't care if He is the Savior of the world. I don't care whatever the claims are that He made of dying for our sins and rising again. This is too much of a trouble to be following Jesus. Jesus. See, the true believer in whom there is the reality of the gospel's grace of salvation continues in the midst of trials, in the midst of troubles. Verse 12 of chapter 1 Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That's the key issue. Do you love God? Do you love God? If you really love God, and that love is not just in word, but it's in deed and in truth, you're not going to abandon him because of trouble. You're going to look to him in the midst of your troubles. But you see, people who begin to look at the troubles themselves, who fail to see the adequacy of the God of heaven for them in the midst of their troubles, they're going to look at their troubles and saying, "Well, look, God's looking to pull a fast one on me. And he sent me an evangelist who told me, come to Jesus and, 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 and wonderful things will happen. Great and wonderful things will occur. And we looked at a passage in the book of Habakkuk where God spoke to a prophet about great and wonderful things are about to come. And you know, those, we'd read those words in Habakkuk chapter 1 and we'd say, great and wonderful things, great and wonderful things are coming, great and wonderful revival. Is oh, yeah, right. Babylonians. War, chariots, trouble, death, Famine, devastation, that's what's coming upon the land. And God's call to Habakkuk is to recognize in the midst of it, God's working. In a strange way, yes. Not in the way we would like. It's not the things that we would have ordered up for our lives or the lives of others. And yet God has his protective hand upon his people. And he says the just will live by faith. And if we trust him and we look to him, he's going to protect and preserve us. And if not in this world, he's going to bring us into his presence with everlasting glory. which is not too bad. Not too shabby. So the whole perspective of the life of the believer is that of trusting God in the midst of our, our troubles. And not to say he's looking to pull a fast one on us because now I'm being tempted to leave him because of things he's brought. He's brought this on me. And James looks to address such a thought by giving us this dialogue in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, when the troubles come, when the testings come. Let no one in the midst of that say, I'm being tempted by God. In other words, tempted away from God by God. God's brought me a set of circumstances I can't handle. And he's given me no recourse but to turn my back on him. He's the culprit. It's God's fault I'm going to turn my back on Jesus. Because he's brought troubles my way. James says, let no one say such a thing. God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Now James is going to tell you the true culprit. The true culprit is not God. The true culprit is right in here. It's right in here. It's right within our own breasts, right within our own desires. Each person is tempted to abandon the gospel, to turn their back on God, to say, I've had enough, I don't want to trust this God or follow this God or cleave to this God or seek the help of this God. In any way, that happens because you're lured and enticed by His own desire. That's an inwrought desire within the person's own heart. That's not God's desire, that's your desire. This is the desire of the person who would abandon the gospel. His own desire. And then that, that desire, when it's conceived, it gives birth what, to sin. And sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So put those things in your mind. You got a desire that brings forth a child. It it, it conceives. It gives birth. It gives birth to sin. And then sin brings forth death. That's the picture of the reality of things. Not that God is tempting you and God wants you to abandon the gospel and abandon faith in Him. And so James then begins the text. Let's look at the context of the text. We've seen the the content of the text, we've seen this context. James is arguing with these people. You can't blame God for the troubles you can't blame God for your unbelief you can't blame God for turning your back on him do not be deceived my beloved brothers now he is treating these people as beloved brothers, he's thinking the best of them, he believes they're truly believers in Christ and they're not going to turn their back on God, they're not going to be led away from steadfastness in Christ, they're going to endure the trial, they're going to endure the testing they're going to receive the crown of life they're his brothers in Christ. But, brothers, hear this out. What, you, what comes from God is not deception. What comes from God is not a set of circumstances looking to bring you down. What comes from God is every good gift, every perfect gift is from God. God is not the giver of troubles. It's not God that led Hitler on a rampage to Europe or to set up concentration camps and killed Jews. That was not God. That's the wicked heart of wicked people. God is the author of every good gift, every perfect gift that comes from Him. And it comes from Him in the answer to all the troubles and problems we have living life in a sinful world. Because, you know, we can say that the every good and perfect gift can be just about everything in the world, and it can. It could be Christ Himself, who is the great gift that God has given, that God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. It could be the Spirit that's given given to the church at Pentecost, given to every believer who repents and believes in the Lord Jesus. It could be the multiplicity of gifts, the gifts of the church, the gift of our brothers and sisters in Christ who pray for us and encourage us and exhort us. And all those things are from God. All those things in the widest sense is part of the every good gift, every perfect gift. God doesn't give garbage gifts. He gives great gifts. He gives these amazingly wonderful gifts. But I rather think in the context of what James is looking to tell these readers is that the good gift and the perfect gift he wants them to see is the gift he speaks about in verse 5. When in the midst of the troubles and trials that meet us in life, the trials of various kinds that come to test our faith, we find ourselves lacking the knowledge of how to deal with it. How do you deal with the Babylonians? When they come with their war machine. How do you deal with the problem of inflation? When you run to the store and every week things are getting more and more expensive. How do you deal with the troubles of a rebellious child who's torn the heart out of you? Or an unfaithful spouse? Or how do you deal with any of the troubles and trials and difficulties of life that God has pleased to allow into our lives? Well God has said with that trial, if you don't know how to get through it, turn to me. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who does what? He gives generously to all without reproach. It will be given him. Here's part of the every good and perfect gift I think that James has in mind. That in the midst of our troubles, trials, and difficulties, and we don't know where to turn, we don't know what to do, and we do the George Bailey prayer. Now, you got to know about that movie, don't you? It's a wonderful life. George Bailey, when Mr. Potter takes his the money that was belonging to the savings alone, and all the tax people are after him, the auditors are coming, jail is. Looking out before him, and he's sitting at that bar, and it's not the old martini. It's this some other guy who's looking to pummel him, and uh, he prays. He says, "Lord, I'm not a praying man, but show me the way. Show me the way. Very simple prayer, but a wonderfully." amazingly wise and sufficient God who answers such prayers who shows his people the way the way of contentedness in the midst of the trouble, the way of wisdom in which we mark out our path, to know what road to take, left, right center, do nothing, do something if you lack wisdom, ask of God, every good and perfect gift comes from him he's not an absentee lord He's a present Lord. He can be approached. And he will not reproach you. He will answer your prayers. He will give you the wisdom that you desire. Again, back in chapter 3, we also have a statement about the wisdom that comes from God. In chapter 3, in verse. Verse 13. I'm sorry. Uh, verse 15 speaks about certain sins, that he says this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. Again, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, comes down from above. Here, this wisdom comes down from above. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, etc. So it's this wisdom we need to navigate the troubles and conflicts and Difficulties of life, the testings and the trials and the temptations and the hardships. But it's not only that God has infinite resources to help us in the midst of these troubles. James points us also to his person, not just the provisions, not just the gifts, not just the things he gives, but who he is, who he is. And look what he says about who God is in the words of verse one. So uh, chop this up now. We're going to make a list of things about the blackboard here. The list of things for which we should be thankful. Number one, it's the good and perfect gifts that he gives. It's the provisions God makes for his needy people. Stick that up on the blackboard. That's the first thing that is a perpetual, unending, unvarying ground for praise and for thanksgiving. But there's a second one, and that is who God is. And look at the words. Every good and perfect gift, verse 17, is from above, coming down from who? The Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What in the world does that mean? And it's a little bit confusing, because you would think, if he's addressing God, he would think of him as the Father of light, singular. I mean, God is light. John says, in him there dwells no darkness. We think of him as the Father, perhaps, of light. But here he's said to be the Father of lights. What's the backdrop of that? Well, there's only one place I'm aware that we have something emphasized in terms of lights. And that's the creation account of Genesis chapter 1, believe it or not. So turn, if you will, to Genesis chapter 1. Then you have this reference to creation, which I believe it's on the fourth day. God said, let there be what? Lights. Now in the beginning He said, let there be light. That's earlier on in verse 3. But now He says, let there be lights. Plural. Lights in the expanse of the heavens, for times and seasons, for days and years, to give light upon the earth. God's the maker of those lights. Who made the sun? Who made the stars? Who made the moon? Who made the lights that brighten, that cheer? The lights that mark times and seasons, days and years. But notice, involved in such a reference to the God who is the father of those lights... The fact that is that all created reality is subject to changing day and night, times and seasons, days and years. It's right in the text where God is presented as the creator of the lights, the father of lights involved in that is that things change. Day turns to night, night turns to day, seasons change, years change. All changes. Except one thing. Though God who made those things that change. With him there is no variation. No change. No shadow cast by turning. The sun going behind the clouds. Coming out again. Shadows cast. That's the picture. The God of creation is himself the unchanging God. God. He remains the same in his person, in his plans, in his purposes, in his promises. And that means, that means he is dependable. That means he is faithful. That means he's trustworthy. We sing the words of the hymn, Change and decay, and all around I see, O thou who changes not, abide with me. God is the God who changes not. James not only moves to consider the gifts, the provisions, the person of the God who supplies these gifts, but he also describes for us the plans and purposes of this God. Look at the words of verse 18. James 1 and verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, I want you to note how that parallels verse 15. Again, verse 15 speaks about our wills, our desires, the things we want to do. we lured away, enticed by our own desires. We desire things more than God. We desire our safety more than God. We desire our protection more than God. We desire our, our, our purposes, our will, our fame, our influence more than God. We don't want to lose anything that we can keep on hold on to, regardless of where God is in the equation. We just want our will. Our desire conceives. God's desire also conceives. See it in verse 18? Of his own will, he did what? Brought us forth. God has babies. He brought us forth. That's the language of birth. His own will brings a birth about. Brings about the birth of his children. Again, we're born from above. We're born from the God who recreates us anew in Christ Jesus. And that's the whole end of this work is that so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his, and it's translated creatures here, but it really could also be creation. In other words, God's in the business of making a new creation. The God who hung the stars, the sun, the stars, and the sky into the observable celestial heavens is the God who does a greater work of creation than this old creation that's a material creation and it has its purpose its function but God's about the work of making all things new he's about the work of making new creations in Christ Jesus and it's of his will he brings us forth to we should be the first fruits of this new creation first fruits are the first fruits of the harvest that are brought in and that's basically saying the harvest is is is, is ready It's ready to be brought in. It's ready to be gleaned. It's harvested. The first fruits are the mark that there's still a harvest yet to come. And when God was saving people in the first century, that's God's saying, I'm beginning this new creation thing. This new creation thing. It's gone, gone on quite a while, but it has still a while to go until Jesus is pleased to wrap it up. He's looking to make all things new. You say, what a mess of a creation we've made of it. That's true. But God's in the work of making a new creation. And you know, we should be part of that new creation work of God. And that has to do with how we live in this world as the new creation of God. Not only bringing other people to the knowledge of himself, but also lessening the burden of the sin of, of, of this world that, that's upon the shoulders of our neighbors. It's looking to love them with Christ-like love. It's looking to show, show interest, concern, goodwill. Show the heart of God to people by the way we relate to them. I know the work of the new creation is never going to be perfect, but we're not never going to be perfect. But that doesn't mean we don't try to be obedient. doesn't mean we don't try to do good. It doesn't mean we don't try to serve God and to experience the reality of His working in us and working through us. Well, we should have the same understanding with regard to God's work, you know, not just in the micro-whatever micro world of our own hearts, but in the macro world, of the influence of the gospel in the world. Just because, I mean, the the good's not the enemy of perfection. I'm I'm sorry, yeah, the good's not the enemy of perfection. I think we tend to think that. If we can't do everything, don't do nothing. If we can't get the whole world sorted out, let's just do nothing. But we're not going to sort out the whole world, but we can have an influence in that direction, in our own little sphere. That's what we're to be seeking to do. But you see, there is this new creation where God is making all things new in a world in which sin and death do not have the final words. And so God's work is not to tempt us. It's not to trip us up. It's not to ensure our defeat. It's to gift us with wisdom. To gift us with his presence and his love. Because of who he is is how he wraps us into his purposes to do good to a fallen world to be partners with him in the work of new creation so that we'll stand the test overcome the trial and win the crown of life what are the final things we can say folks we can get all absorbed with the problems of the world the problems of our life the problems of others and in immersing ourselves in those problems we cannot find a solution i think one of the reasons there's not a genuine in what heartfelt spirit of gratitude is because we are problem focused not solution focused we're looking at the troubles, not the one who alleviates the troubles. We're looking at the difficulties and not the one who brings deliverance. I think we look in the wrong place. You know, you have people that are saying, I've got to struggle against the sin of my heart. And all they're consumed with is the sin of their hearts. And you know, when you of all you're consumed with is the sin of your heart, you're never going to have victory over the sin of your heart. You're just going to continue to do the sins of your heart because that's where your focus lies. The focus of deliverance from the sin of your heart is not your heart and sin. It's Christ and His salvation. It's the power of God's grace. It's God's presence with us giving us every good and perfect gift that we might have the wisdom, we might have the enablement, we might have the skill in living, which is really what wisdom is. Wisdom, is skill in living. How to, how to live skillfully in this world, facing the troubles, facing the problems with the resources that the gospel gives. Would you have a continual reservoir of thanksgiving? Live out of the blessings of the gospel, not the troubles of the old creation, not the troubles of this present evil age. But live out of the reality of the hope of the powers of the age to come. Live out of the powers that Christ supplies through His Spirit, the wisdom that He gives, the blessings that are given to us from above, from the Father of lights, from the unchangeable God who will never leave us and never forsake us. We always have a ground, a massive ground for thanksgiving and praise and it doesn't seem to me that we need to be doing a whole lot to be able to make the proper transition from problem-centered living to solution-centered living getting out of the problem the poison of our own sin to finding the antidote from that sin in Jesus in the working of the spirit in the wisdom that's from above that we would stand in the day of trial being strengthened in the Lord and in the power of his might may God help us to see a massive grounds for constant and exuberant thanksgiving that really when you come right down to it it really overwhelms everything of the negative negative factor in our hearts You you can point to all of the badness of the world all of the inconsistency of your own history all of the troubles that beset you And yet, the writer of the Hebrews says, "Looking to Jesus, the Author and the Finisher of our faith, that's how you run the race. Not looking at the sins that so easily besets you, looking at the One who delivers us from them. May God be pleased to give us a joyful Thanksgiving and the recognition of who He is. Don't be deceived." Every good and perfect gift comes from above. From the Father of the lights in whom there is no variableness, nor shadow cast by turning. And it's of His own will. And this His will is going to be the, the final thing. It's not ultimately our will. His will will be done in bringing forth a new creation. And the great question is, are we going to be those who are part of that new creation? Part of that new, new people who live out of the comforts of the gospel, having been born of him, having been equipped by him to do his will and not our own. And it's in that path that I believe a true thankfulness of heart emerges. A true heart filled with praise comes to fullness of expression in the hearts of those who know how rich they are, in the blessings of the gospel. And may God be pleased to use these thoughts to give us a impetus to praise, impetus to thanksgiving. Let's commit our thoughts to him as we pray. Father, we're thankful for this portion of your truth in James's letter. It's a statement that often we just pass over or we gain parts of understanding of what James is saying, but help us to think about it in the light of the the great questions of the troubles and trials and testings of this life, and how we as your people are to stand and emerge, passing those tests and serving you with gladness and and being successful in all of the matters of life, having skill in living, having wisdom to know the things to do, the paths to take the ways to serve you better, the ways to bring greater glory and honor and praise to your name. and Lord, you are not a God who deprives us of these things. You welcome us to come to you and ask for these things that you have for us, these good and and perfect gifts. We pray we would draw upon the fullness of your goodness and grace and partake of those gifts with joy and live our lives in this world with humble thanksgiving with humility before you, with hearts that recognize what great things you have done. Hear our prayers as we ask these things. In Jesus' name, amen.